Hello, everyone. Today, we want to have an informal virtual roundtable discussion about the lessons that can be learned about due diligence for investors, corporate directors and officers, and even the U.S. Patent and Trade Office from Theranos and the criminal conviction of its former CEO, Elizabeth Holmes. We assume that our audience is diverse and includes executives of startup and other early stage businesses, directors of private companies, private investors, lawyers, and the Simply Curious. We want to try and offer something for each of you. So we will take we will talk about this matter from several different perspectives centered around a common theme of diligence and fraud prevention. To put this discussion in context, I want to give a brief overview of the Theranos matter. Theranos was a privately held corporation that claimed to have developed a breakthrough blood testing technology using a device that performed tests using very small amounts of blood. Theranos raised nearly $700 million from venture capitalists and private investors, most of whom were ultra wealthy, in private placements not registered with the SEC. At its peak, Theranos was valued at approximately $10 billion. It turned out that many of the claims made by Theranos about its technology and its business were false. The SEC brought a civil action against Theranos and its CEO, Elizabeth Holmes, under the anti-fraud provisions of federal securities laws. This action was subsequently settled. The Justice Department then brought a criminal indictment against Ms. Holmes for wire fraud and conspiracy to commit wire fraud based on the same conduct as the SEC's civil action. In January 2022, a jury convicted Ms. Holmes of three counts of investor-related wire fraud and one count of conspiracy to defraud investors. Ms. Holmes was also charged with three other counts of investor-related wire fraud and with defrauding patients. She was either acquitted or the jury was unable to reach a unanimous verdict on those charges. <laughs> Our panelists today for this discussion are Laurie Gelshin, and Bob Hussle, partners in SGR's corporate group, Mike Risen, a partner in SGR's intellectual property group, and I'm Emily Ward, a partner in SGR's litigation and white collar law group. Theranos raised its money through private place placements to pre-selected investors and institutions, not publicly registered offerings in the open market. The theory of permitting private placements is that certain kinds of investors are sufficiently sophisticated and can fend for themselves in making decisions to invest in securities. Therefore, the idea is that they do not need the protections afforded by the registration process of federal and state securities laws. Even though Theranos raised funds through private placements, the anti-fraud provisions of security laws still applied. But interestingly, in this matter, at least some of these so-called sophisticated investors did little to protect themselves and apparently did very little due diligence or investigation on the company and its claims. Lori, as someone with experience representing issuers in private offerings, what kind of diligence might have revealed that something was amiss or at least sent up some red flags? Thank you, Emily. It, it's very typical, almost universal, for investors to review the financial statements and corporate records of the issuer. Some investors asked for these items from Theranos but did not receive them. Receiving pushback on this very basic request is clearly a red flag. It's also typical for investors to review an issuer's material contracts. Given that the claims made by Theranos 
Potential investors may have asked to see its contracts with the military, retailers, or pharmaceutical companies. This may have revealed, for instance, that claims of Theranos products being used by the U.S. Department of Defense in Afghanistan were not supportable. Investors could have also performed diligence on Theranos' supply chain. This may have revealed that it was purchasing traditional blood testing equipment from third parties. This should have led investors to ask why. We now know it was because Theranos was testing blood samples on other companies' equipment and claiming it as their own. Investors might have also engaged healthcare and technology experts to diligence the product. Does it work? Some investors never asked to see the blood analyzer in action and never asked to review Theranos' intellectual property portfolio. Those that did ask questions about the technology received answers that were characterized as cagey, indirect, oblique, or deflective. That's somewhat concerning. I'll mention that as well, that investors who did do some diligence were still defrauded because their diligence did not uncover the fraud. Thanks, Lori. Focusing on startups especially, what kind of due diligence should investors consider taking when considering whether to invest in a startup company like Theranos? Well, diligence on startups typically involves reviewing financial statements, corporate records, material contracts, as well as the product or the technology, the market, capitalization, the business model, and projections, among other things. With startups in particular, it's also important to diligence the people, the founder, the senior executives, and the key management. Is there experience and expertise in the C-suite to know that what the company is attempting to achieve is actually possible? Do they have a fundamental understanding of the product or process and how it works? And do they have the leadership and, ex and experience necessary to achieve what they envision? It's very easy to imagine how a startup company with new technology and untested ideas might have to make certain claims or promises which are exaggerated or not yet true or not yet testable. What's the difference between fraud, like what happened here, and with puffery or just exaggeration or hopes? So statements which are puffery are typically forward-looking statements. They're vague, they're generalized statements of optimism that are not capable of objective verification. For instance, this product is the best in the world and will revolutionize the industry is puffing. A reasonable person would not think this is true and would not rely on it. Puffery is insufficiently specific for a reasonable investor to find it important to the total mix of information. Fraud, however, is making an untrue statement of material fact or failing to disclose a fact necessary to make the statements that were made not misleading. In this case, Ms. Holmes and others misre misrepresented current facts and did so with specificity. For instance, claiming that Theranos' proprietary analyzer could perform over 100 tests when it could only perform a small number of tests, or claiming it was deployed by the U.S. Department of Defense in the field when it never was. Got it. So it's the specificity which really raised the element of fraud here rather than just saying we have the newest, greatest technology. Right. 
One of the consequences of Theranos being a private company is that it did not have many of the corporate governance safeguards required to be in place for public companies. These can include an independent audit committee or audited financial statements, something which there is no evidence Theranos ever had, a diverse and balanced board composition, Lori, you actually mentioned that looking into the experience of leadership is one element of diligence which an investor can do. And public companies are required to tell shareholders why they think the director nominees are qualified to serve as directors. Most of Theranos' board was made up of high-profile politicians, statesmen, military, and business leaders. However, very few brought significant expertise in blood testing or medical devices. Instead, most seem to have been selected for their fame, connections to the military, or ability to help raise additional funds. One final protection to consider is whether there is a whistleblower hotline and whistleblower protections. As a private company, internal whistleblowing was not protected by law at Theranos and was reportedly highly discouraged. The only whistleblowing that was protected at Theranos was if an employee reported concerns directly to the government, but the employees at Theranos didn't know that. Bob, as someone with years of experience assisting prospective investors in the purchase of securities, what should a prospective investor look for when considering the corporate governance policies of a private company? Well, Emily, I think there are several things, and let me just uh, harken back to a few points Lori made and, and expand on them from a corporate governance perspective. I think prospective investors should not only do the diligence that Lori mentioned, but they should also look at the nature of the prior investors in the company. Were they sophisticated and professional money managers or were they investing for their own account? And also determine whether or not those people did diligence and if so, how extensive that diligence was. That, that is, I think, kind of a precursor to corporate governance. Similarly, uh, with respect to the board composition, it's important to know not only the qualification of each of the directors, but also what are their personal investments in the entity in which you are about to invest. Ideally, you would like to see a board comprised of individuals with significant personal investments and stakes in the entity. With respect to the audited financial statements, there's no requirement for private companies to have audited financial statements. But at some point during the life cycle of a private company, you would expect that prior significant investors would demand that the company prepare and distribute audited financial statements. So at, at some point, the fact that they don't have those should be a clear red flag. I mean, this company was value, valued at approximately $10 billion at its peak. It's, it's, it's almost inconceivable that it could go that long without having audited financials. Yeah, Certainly, that seems absolutely crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. Um, another thing you might ask as a prospective investor is whether the company had an internal audit function. There's no evidence that Theranos did, but it should have and it could have, and that would have perhaps um, brought the fraud to light sooner. And finally, if you think about whistleblower policies and protections, again, as a private company, uh, the only protection that is afforded a whistleblower is protection of whistleblowing to the government. In this case, it was clear that the employees of Theranos didn't realize that that was protected. 
And so one thing you might ask a company is what is their whistleblower policy? Whether they have updated their employee non-disclosure forms to make clear that those employees are permitted to talk to the government. In many cases, uh, companies use old forms where that was not the case and employees still don't know that they are permitted to disclose to the government uh, without fear of reprisal. Thanks. You've mentioned a number of things that a shareholder should look for in corporate governance before investing. Are there any additional corporate governance considerations that someone should investigate when considering whether to join the board of a private company like Theranos? Well, they should look at many of the same things, but what they might also wish to examine is whether there are committees of the board. Is there an audit committee of the board? Is there a, a corporate governance committee of the board? Does the board meet in executive session without management? Uh, do they have access to the company's auditors directly if there are auditors? Those are all things that if I were considering joining a board, I'd want to know about in addition to just the usual, you know, is there DNO insurance in place? Um, but, but how does the board operate? How does it uh, conduct its oversight of the entity in a way that discharges the board's duty? Does the Theranos situation suggest that we need more regulation of private companies so that fraud is detected sooner or maybe even avoided? Well, I think uh, it's, it's hard to know whether this is an outlier or whether it is the tip of the iceberg. I do think that as more and more companies grow in size uh, before they go public, and some may never go public, and uh, given the differences between public disclosure versus non-public disclosure, I, I do think you're going to continue to see these dynamics in place, and we are going to continue to see you know, fraudulent activity. Now, being a public company doesn't mean that you all of a sudden avoid fraud. I mean, we have Enron and, and WorldCom as prime examples of that. But I, I do think that the access to capital uh, that we have experienced over the last 30 years and the increased investment in private companies um, really in lieu of public investment creates a situation that is likely to breed more fraud and is also likely to invite more regulation. Thanks, Bob. One final area I wanted to explore is the topic of intellectual property and how due diligence can be affected by things like patents. Um, Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos filed for and were granted several U.S. patents. This is something which likely made them look like a good investment, both for individual investors and some of the large companies who had contracts with Theranos like Walgreens. Mike, does the fact that Theranos was granted patents for technology mean the technology itself was good and vetted by the U.S. government? Well, first, let me say that patents are meaningful to competitors, to investors, and to the patent owners themselves. Per personally, I've witnessed the topic of patents become more mainstream and colloquial over like the past 10, 15 years. I lovingly call it the shark tank effect as uh, these terms like intellectual property and patents, uh, you know, are spread about the, the public sphere. Uh, but with increased interest in patents comes some general misinformation and misnomers, if you will. For example, 
someone may find that uh, widget company has patents on the electric car. So without a full understanding, as they popularize this set of patents, uh, the widget company is, is then held out that they own everything, the exclusive rights to the electric car. Uh, without any further investigation or diligence, you may find out that the patent applications were actually just still pending, or maybe they were abandoned, or maybe they were granted but only covered a very specialized particular area, maybe the battery pack. That's why it's important that we do have diligence in the patent area. So back to the, the root question, which was in, in the Theranos situation, does, it, does having patents mean that it's been vetted, that the technology is good? I, I think it's important that we look at the background of this. What happens when you try to apply for a patent? First, you file an application, and you only have to meet certain minimal formal formalities. Then that gets accepted. But then that's, it's not over then. It gets assigned to a patent examiner, and that application uh, is then forwarded to the examiner. The examiner is supposed to review that application to determine if it should be granted as a patent or not. The examination process includes uh, highly technical evaluation, typically, and it's intertwined with all of these patent laws, country by country. In the United States, one of these particular areas is whether or not the application itself has described the invention with enough specificity as to enable somebody else in that technology area to read the application and then make it or be able to use it sufficiently. We call that enablement. The question is, have the applications actually enabled someone to make the invention? So you really don't have to prove that you've made the, that you've made the invention as an applicant. What you need to do is you need to put enough details in the application such that someone else, you're teaching somebody else how to do it or how to make it. Here in the Theranos scenario, we see hundreds of millions of dollars in investment after the applications were filed. You see years and years and years of trial and error and, and even third-party uh, equipment being brought in to, you know, to kind of buy some time. One may speculate very quickly that what was put in the applications was not necessarily enabled because you couldn't just go out and make it based upon what was written there. So Shark Tank effect or not, this sounds like a very complicated and, and technical process. What sort of diligence should a prospective investor conduct with a company that holds patents that you know is accessible to that prospective investor? Yeah, I think it's important that you first understand what the scope of the patent really covers. I gave that generic example of widget company owning electric cars versus some really particular battery pack. It may just be that. Pick up the patent, have someone look at it with that technical and legal eye to determine what what is really covered by this patent. What is the scope of what the patent owner has exclusive rights to. Further, you can decide, are there problems with the patent? Are there facial issues such as a failure to properly enable? Just because the patent office has put their stamp on it doesn't necessarily mean that the challenges are over. There are several uh, jurisdictions that allow post-grant type of challenges, whether it's in the court system or here in the United States, you can actually bring up challenges in a newly formed uh, board 
Uh, it's a patent trials and appeal board, which was established in 2012, which allows you to challenge certain aspects of patents that have already been granted. You can bring it as a third party and meeting certain guideline requirements, uh, you can attack that. So one doing diligence may be able to look at a patent portfolio and identify, could these patents be challenged and could they be invalidated? Could they be, in other words, killed? So uh, it's worth it just to understand, number one, what's the scope? And number two, what are the issues? What are the problems that could be faced here and could they be challenged uh, under one of these other uh, guidelines? So secrecy at, at Theranos and within Theranos is notorious uh, in much of the reporting about the Theranos situation. So how does secrecy and trade secrets interplay with the patents that you have described? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, anytime you have technology like this, the interplay between patents and trade secrets always arises. Uh, the balance there is because they're juxtaposed to each other. On one hand, we just explained that to file for a patent, you need to describe in your application enough specificity of your invention to enable somebody that's skilled in that technology to go out and make and use it. That's the great exchange for this exclusive exclusivity that the patent provides. You teach everybody else what your invention is. Well, that's exactly the opposite of trade secret. In trade secret, you must prove that you've taken measures to keep your advantage, your, your secrets that give you that commercial advantage a secret. Non-disclosure agreements, logbooks, all of these uh, elements, all of these policies are put in place in order to ensure that, it, that your trade secrets are not made public. So when someone approaches the technology and looks at intellectual property protections, they can identify, well, do I need to disclose this? Is, is this something that I need to share? Is the patent the best way? Is trade secret the best way? Uh, and it's a very sophisticated evaluation that it's, it's steeped absolutely in, in the technology area. And if you, if you consider, for example, that trade secrets can be quite powerful for protection, uh, they can also be used uh, to evade certain sharing of information. We mentioned whistleblowers uh, earlier on this podcast, and I'll bring it up again. When asked why uh, Elizabeth Holmes did not share the use of the third-party devices in her criminal trial, as opposed to her own devices or the company's own devices, uh, she said, well, that would possibly violate and misappropriate trade secrets. So even Ms. Holmes was hiding behind this veil of secrecy to say, I don't want to step on anyone else's trade secret. I don't want to violate disclosure. So therefore, I didn't tell anybody that that's what we were doing. And we, we come back to what if someone was in that lab and they understood that's what was happening? What is their comfort level to be a whistleblower, to come out and say, this, this is not trade protecting trade secret. This is fraud. What needs to be said? And it's interesting because, at least in the United States, the Defense of Trade Secret Act, which was the federal legislation that put into place trade secret protection, actually has a safe harbor provision for whistleblowers. In fact, if you want to have the full protection of this federal law for trade secrets, you're required to advise your employees 
of this safe harbor. And that safe harbor is that if you as an employee share trade secrets to the government for the purpose of uh, reporting or investigating a suspected violation of the law, then you are protected for, from the safe harbor. You are protected under the safe harbor provision uh, for not misappropriating that trade secret. So it is important that although there's this balance at play, secrets are secrets. Uh, we mentioned again the importance of having whistleblower um, policies. They, they, the employees should understand uh, what their rights are and what their protections are for speaking to appropriate parties. Fascinating stuff. Obviously, we've only scratched the surface on what the Theranos experience can teach us about due diligence. But as we close, I wonder if each of you could give our audience your either key takeaways or predictions for how this matter will affect your field going forward. Lori, if you want to lead us off. Sure. So for investors, this is a reminder to be wary about investing based, based on relationships without sufficient diligence. You may have a relationship with and trust the founder or a board member or one of the other investors. Trust, but verify the claims made about the company and the business before investing. And for issuers, a good reminder comes from a statement made by a director of the SEC's San Francisco Regional Office, which is this. Invest innovators who seek to revolutionize and disrupt an industry must tell investors the truth about what their technologies can do today, not just what they hope it might do someday. So I think those are important takeaways, both for the investor and for a company looking for investment. Got it. Bob, what about you? Well, I think we are going to see increased regulatory scrutiny on large private companies uh, that have chosen to stay private rather than to go public and expose themselves to public disclosure obligations. And I think that could result in some rulemaking or some legislation at either the federal and or the state level. So I, I think that's very possible. I, I think the other thing we should see is we should see that private investors who invest in these kind of companies uh, undertake a greater level of diligence than appears to have been the case at Theranos. Mike, any closing thoughts from you? Well, I think we see here that there are certain actions that were taken that were on the far end of the spectrum. So if we speak to actions that may not be outright fraud, maybe they're in this gray area, the question is how do we how do we suss that out? And the key term all day today on this podcast was diligence. And intellectual properties is no different. In M&A, you need your diligence to determine if these trade secrets were being protected or if the patent portfolio can stand up to a challenge or enforcement. Same thing with investors. If they're looking at the IP protections that a startup has, the question is, what does it really protect? Are there any warts? Is there something that we're walking into that these are not even as good as the paper that they're written on? A little bit of diligence can go a long way to validate um, intellectual property holdings. 
Thank you. And thank you to Lori, Bob, and Mike for joining us today. And thank you to our audience for tuning in to today's episode. To listen to more episodes of the Leaders Speak podcast, please visit our website or wherever you go to get your podcasts.